Welcome, adventurers. This week, a little something different. Going to be doing an episode entitled The D&D 5E of TFTD. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon. Welcome everybody, one and all. Uh, as you can already tell here, we are doing something different this week, as you can tell by my talking, not narrating. Uh, the title of the show was the D&D 5E, sorry, yeah, D&D 5E of TFTD. So what is D&D 5E? It is Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, it's the abbreviation, and TFT, sorry, TFTD, Tales from the Dungeon is what we got going on. So what I'm going to do is take just a little bit of time here to explain how Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition affected the stories I told. When I when you come to my Patreon site, you see that I say the stories are based on Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit uh, about each episode and some of the ways the rules and uh, books influenced basically the storytelling process of Tales from the Dungeon Season 1. With that being said, Season 1 is over. I can't thank everybody enough for listening and the support that they have. My patrons on Patreon, and I had backers even before that that made this so all of the hours I put into this were not 100% free, though, yeah, still a lot of hours. But I wanted to thank one patron in particular, my natural 20-level patron, Carolyn Carney. Uh, Really just an amazing uh, financial support, as well as all my original backers from my GoFundMe. Uh, There were about 10 or 11, and without them, I don't think I would have probably made it through season one. But I took money from them and committed, and here we are. So without further ado, we're going to move into talking about D&D 5e rules and the episodes. I just wanted to start by saying Tales from the Dungeon is based on an original world that I am currently creating a campaign for and running. It started with a single map that I drew for a very short adventure I had written for a one-shot campaign for a son, uh, my son, and a friend who we were watching over a winter break, and it really was just supposed to be a two- or three-day thing to draw them away from the TV for a little bit. Uh, And then it just so happened at the time I came across another group who was interested in getting up and going with Dungeons & Dragons 5e, and in drawing that map, my brain was already wondering about how the world worked and how the cities interacted and who knew what uh, in that world. How did it come to be? And so my brain was already past a one-shot in a lot of ways. And so I volunteered to DM or Dungeon Master for a group, and it has turned into something where I now have the framework for a campaign that probably will take... uh, can take players all the way up to level 20 if we continue. Uh, As part of that 
process. Basically, I drew more maps for the expanded campaign. And in drawing expanded maps, I just continued to get more and more curious about the world I was creating. And it basically eventually led me into this process of Tales from the Dungeon. I want to go ahead here and say from this point out, I will be talking about episodes 1 through 13, basically. And if you haven't listened to them, I really would appreciate it if you did. And if you haven't and can decide to continue, if you haven't listened and decide to continue past this point, you obviously are going to be dealing with spoilers, spoilers, and then there's going to be some more spoilers because this is what occurred over season one. So if that's that. So jumping right into episodes one and two uh, titled Yonif's Fate. Basically, the the principle of that story, these days you'll see on social media the term TPK, Total Party Kill, uh, which means all the group of adventurers that are coming together uh, all wind up dead. And it seemed to be, when I was thinking about Dungeons & Dragons, and I played in my youth not as much as some, but I did as well, a lot of the modules back then were really designed so that it was difficult for your party to actually all be alive or even anyone alive at the end of that adventure. They were designed to to challenge, um, probably more than challenge, to kill a lot of folks. So basically, I just felt like a party death is a really kind of like the whole party getting destroyed is kind of an archetypal archetypical situation in Dungeons and Dragons and it's I think something everyone lives in fear of is the total party destruction and but it's also things people have experienced so in my first tale it, it's it's kind of just an homage to that that party getting destroyed uh but you know as we move along we see there may be some more to episode 1 and 2 than we think but but that that original idea for the story is the total party kill uh so for here i'm I'm just going to really talk about the party there's a lot listen to the story there's a lot of people meeting each other uh and and a, a situation with a specific character yanif who is the main character a human fighter fifth level uh just a note on characters throughout this story i did in fact roll all of the characters and i used the, one of the methods which is you roll four dice four d6 and subtract out the least lowest of those dice and then arrange those in which way you wanted so all the characters in tale, tales from the dungeon have actually been rolled uh with legitimate dice rolls and arranged and then leveled up to whatever level made sense for the story. So just a quick side note on characters there. And character sheets for patrons are available for the people uh, in these stories as well. So episode one and two kind of... One of the... Basically the climax of the story winds up with a combat between the party and here and a group of hobgoblins. So basically we wind up with Yanif, the human fighter, coming into a dark, very large dark chamber and then is followed in eventually by the rest of the party, which consists of a wizard, a cleric, and a thief. Uh, and as they kind of dribble in, 
Yanif is paranoid, has a feeling in the back of the neck that something is wrong. And then we wind up with an ambush. So at the beginning of that round, as I'm imagining the combat from a dungeon master's point and from the group's point, the party is moving into the dungeon and Yanif, maybe through a clue of the the dungeon master, has heard a little bit of noise that has made him paranoid. And so as the character is moving in, he is saying, I'm, I'm listening for sounds, I'm doing whatever. And then we eventually get to a point where there's huge clatter in one corner of the room. And that basically would be the role for initiative part of the combat. So we have that situation. And because everyone's paranoid and some of the characters are more on edge on the other, it's a situation where as a dungeon master, I would have allowed a perception role to see if you were completely supply, su- surprised, surprised by the, the situation at hand or not. And in this situation, you basically have Yanif, who's the main character and fighter, not surprised he makes his perception roll, probably with advantage because he was so paranoid about what's going on. And then Snare the Thief also makes his thing. The other, Snare, yeah, Snare is the gnomish thief. The other two, Alarian the Wizard and Ortoval the Cleric, do not make their perception rolls and are basically therefore subject to a surprise round where they are caught in inaction and aren't able to do anything in that first round. Uh, yeah, so that's happened. And then the other thing I really wanted to see, does it mesh with the rules, is basically in that first round, both Ortoval the Cleric and Alarian the Wizard are killed in, 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 in a single round of combat. And I it makes sense in a storytelling capacity, but I wanted to see, did it in fact mesh with the rules is that really legitimate could it have really happened and so basically i sketched out could it have happened single blow so basically we have two people die ortoval the cleric and the wizard ortoval the cleric is killed by a massive hobgoblin if you follow way down all the way into episode 12 and 13 we find out it's not any ordinary hobgoblin that is attacking ortoval but it is a Goblin warlord, uh, I refer to him as General Soldrig in the in the stories. So it's not just any hobgoblin; it's a very special hobgoblin, and he is equipped with a, what is a magical item from the Dungeon Master's Guide, page two hundred seven: a sword of sharpness. So the sword of sharpness always deals max damage, and on crits critical hits that also deals an extra 14 points of slashing damage. So I calc that all up, uh, critical hit with a long sword plus strength bonus and what, and you wind up with a, basically a single critical hit from that is in the 39 hit point range. And then in the last story, I also mentioned there's another hobgoblin, and the hobgoblins standing next to him. The hobgoblins have an advantage with people around where they can deal extra damage when allies are near. So, let's say General Soldrig had the martial advantage, landed a critical hit with the Sword of Sharpness. Uh, so that that by itself is 48 hit points of damage. Then he follows up in the description with a shield bash, which I just use the average damage on that, which is five. And we are talking 53 hit points just from those two attacks. Now, 
hobgoblin uh, warlords have three attacks. So in the narrative of the story, I have him land the critical hit, shield smash the guy to Orteval to his feet, and then there's a pause for an interaction, but they actually have a third attack, which was the final fatal blow. So in all that calculation, you wind up with 65 hit points of damage just in that one round of attack. So I calc that out and a cleric, a fairly tough cleric, if you have a plus two to your constitution bonus, and then say they rolled average all the way through, you get all the way up to a seventh level cleric and they only, at that point, if they basically averaged the average roll, but plus two to all their cons going all the way up, seventh level, seventh level cleric would have 52 hit points. So 65, I mean, conceivably you could take out an eighth or ninth level cleric in one round and that's that's the being kind of the thing with surprise in D D. it's uh it's quite bad and then i did the same calc for the wizard uh, and i said two arrows hit regular arrows and there you go and then a crit one crit so the there's a description of an arrow hitting him in the throat a critical hit all these tax attacks would have taken place with uh, advantage, in which case, you know, the criticals happening in this situation are not that hard to believe. Anyway, same situation, and uh, the Alarian is described as scrawny, and in my mind is is in a situation where you actually would have a, a minus to a con of minus one at, at the minimum, and that's kind of scary to look at a wizard with a bad con, because all the way up to ninth level, you're talking about only 29 hit points. Uh, so three arrows taking out Alarian, who was way, way below ninth level, not even near, uh, a ninth level wizard easily could be taken out by three arrows in a surprise round. <clears throat> Only one hit, uh, one critical hit. So as you can see, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and uh, how it went. Uh, the, 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 the combat moves on to three three hobgoblins attacking Yanif, and he manages to overcome all three of them. There's also, I thought that all out as well. Uh, if you ever want to hear about it, I can tell you, but I've been rambling at this point. Basically, he has two attacks at fifth level. He uses one for a shove attack to knock one of the hobgoblins prone, who we later find out to be a hobgoblin captain named Morop. And then through action surges and also a lucky crit here or there, the other two hobgoblins being normal, uh, Yonef is able to dispatch all three of those hobgoblins. Totally works out within the rules, and and there you go. And in fact, actually, the captain, who is knocked prone, later stands to his feet and, and is in a situation where he may deal a ton of damage to Yonef, but then uh, the gnome Snare, who is a thief, makes a hidden sneak attack against Morop and ends him so those things are all within the rules so there you go that was a lot of rules about the combat but just proving that i spent a time not proving yeah proof in a math sense that the things that i talk about in the story are totally uh legitimate so totally worked out and that's that all right well moving on to episodes three and four hidden among barrels Basically, what we wind up is a creation story for a warlock character uh, in the player's handbook. If you go to page 107, you can read about warlocks. Uh, for me, this one is 
it's just a backstory. It's a creation story. It's an origin story. And as a DM and the campaign I'm in, I love, I love origin stories because it allows the role-playing experience to be so much more involved and deeper. And in fact, as the dungeon master, with the different background stories being given to me, it allows me to customize that campaign to the exact players that are in there and add add differences to really make those characters feel important and to really make it feel like the story is about those characters and not generically just walking through a module. So for me, backstories are just a huge part of the thing. So uh, basically you wind up the character Mela. She's a human female and we find out in that story that she had a very traumatic experience as a childhood and then was happened upon by an elder god. Uh, <clears throat> and so she winds up with a pact of the greater old one, which you can read about, like I said, the player's handbook there, page 107, and, the, and I think a few, four or five pages after. The story starts with her kind of skulking in an alley. She's an urchin, she's poor, she's destitute. Uh, you find out a little bit about her in the story that she was basically the only survivor of an attack on a village and then was taken by dwarves, not in the story, but if you read the character sheet, she was taken by dwarves who found her to a nearby human settlement where she was uh, an orphan, orphan, but ran away from the orphanage just due to her being very different and her difference being the fact that she was a burgeoning warlock. Uh, uh, as we find out a little bit about Mela, where she starts beginning to see she's different, she's in an alley in the middle of the night, but she can still see. So as a warlock class uh, character, if you look at the player's handbook, they have access to some pretty cool abilities uh, called Eldritch Invocations. Mela has one called Devil's Sight, and Devil's Sight allows the, that warlock character to see up to 120 feet in the dark, basically unimpeded, including Magical Darkness, very cool ability. Uh, so the character I gave, Devil's Sight, uh, it's one of the things she has. And then things go bad for Mela in the alley, and she is set upon by some unpleasant uh, thug types who are mean her no good. So she is tries to sneak away, is caught, uh, and then is able to barely escape the nasty individual Borvin, uh, who knocks her to the ground, but she then lights him up on fire. You have uh, the first thing of a spell use there, Hellish Rebuke. So she uses Hellish Rebuke on Borvin and then makes her escape, uh, fleeing into the alley where she's pursued. Eventually in the story you find out, or don't find out, eventually in the story she's cornered and set upon by the, the remains of the thugs. And it's at this point that she's with her back to the wall, we really see... Mela let loose like she as an urchin she's hidden and, and hiding at all times but this is a she's just animal back to the wall and still uncomfortable with her powers but not allowing the thug thuggery and her bullying to continue she turns her on the remaining people and kind of takes control of the situation uh, so the first character we see one of the thugs she in 
runs an incantation. He collapses to the ground, laughing incontrollably. Uh, that spell is Tasha's hideous laughter uh, available to the warlocks of the Greater Old One pack. So that kind of takes him out of the combat. And then we move to the Warlock special over and over and over again, Cantrip of Doom, Eldritch Blast, also a spell, uh, and she just starts lighting them up. At this point, the the thugs, seeing they've lost the upper hand entirely, flee, and and Mela is seems to be safe at this point and tired and walks out into the alley. And then other parts of the story happen where we meet a new character. But in that last meeting, we find out that Mela's name is actually the dwarvish word, dwarven word for little girl. And because of her backstory, she lost her memory as a, as her basically lost her childhood memories. And when she was first found, the dwarves, dwarves kept referring to her as Mela, and so she had just assumed her name was Mela. Uh, that being said, it brings me to one more thing. If we, The character sheet for Mela, when you start out creating a character, you know a certain amount of languages, so on the character sheet I had starred Dwarven, and the reason I did that was there's different ways to do character creation, right? So you can automatically have everything that the class allows you. And in this case, Mela speaks common and dwarvish as what she would have been allowed, been allowed for the immediate creation of the character. But in this case, and her backstory, and something the DM and a character could work out. She doesn't know Dwarven yet, even though she's allowed to, but this is the beginning of why she knows Dwarven. She meets a Dwarvish character who we will learn more about in the future and because her name turned out her whole life for and for her it's only 10 years of memory 10 to 12 years of memory so she's kind of shocked to find out that her name had a meaning in another language and as she gets to know the character uh colborn more that's why she learns dwarf and she learns about her name and is interested to find out then some of maybe memories coming back about her dwarven interactions from her very first memories. So, so you, you have the ability to know dwarven from the beginning, but in this case, it would be a cool story thing to do as a dungeon master. And as a player character, you're learning dwarven because of who you are. So that's how uh, she winds up with the second one. Okay. Moving into episodes five and six, A Deal Sealed in Blood. A Deal Sealed in Blood is a story about a thief, and basically this is a pretty quick story, and I will go over it quickly. And when I say a quick story, there's not a lot of rules involved here. You meet the carrier, the, you, sorry, you meet the character, Karya Vardish, who is a very accomplished uh, and well-thought-of thief. And she is a cat burglar of sorts. She will procure items for money. That is all she does. When I saw the story, I thought of it as possibly a one-player campaign. Dungeons and Dragons can be played with all kinds of people, or it can be played with two people. You could have one person and a dungeon master. And in this case, maybe that's how this campaign would have been with Karia, Because she's a single character. She's a loner. 
And it's it's just a, a great idea if you just there's only two of you. What what think of a way to work a single character in there. Uh anyway, any campaign or mission is going to have downtime or in between time where you're finding out what's happening next or what are you going to do. And that can be flushed out and colorful as any of the rest of the role playing depending on what your preferences are. So, in this case the story is really just about uh Karia and her finding out what her next mission is going to be. Uh she meets the wizard Esmere who meets the wizard Esmere who has a task for her, an item to recover. And uh there's more to come, more to come with Karia and we will probably see a lot more of the rules and her skill use in stories to come on Karia. But this one is just kind of color, right? We had her moving through a creepy wizard's tower to the top in an interaction with a interesting NPC and Esmeralda the wizard. So D&D made more by description, colors, backstories, all that stuff. So that one pretty basic. Uh, not much in the way of rules, but yeah, more to come on Karia. Okay, episodes seven and nine, seven, eight, and nine, seven through nine, his last night. Uh, when I started Tales from the Dungeon, they were, they're all little one-shots. They're supposed to be just blips and blops of everyone's little life. And for this one, I had just written down the word vampire. And vampire stories have been told over and over and over. And so I wanted to do something at least a little different. And so I had a discussion about my, with my wife about what, what would she want to hear and uh, she wanted to hear something different where the where the vampire had some positive influence or wasn't just an evil, big, bad, whatever. So it kind of gave me the beginning of the ideas for this story. Uh, this story also winds up kind of tragically in a lot of ways. You have an entire clerical party, a group of clerics and paladins working together, chasing a very powerful vampire. Uh, they had just found out about him and were moving to end him. Uh, there's a lot going on in the story, including some elements of death and dying. Uh, I recently have lost a couple of friends to cancer, uh, really has affected my life for the last couple of years. And there's elements of that in this story as it kind of bounces back and forth between two older gentlemen that we don't, we don't quite know how they immediately tie into the story. Uh, but it's one of a, one friend sitting watch as another passes, and then we move back to the party of clerics back and forth until <clears throat> the story kind of comes together. So, when looking up vampires in the player's handbook, not player's handbook, I'm sorry, it's a, in the monster's manual, I was actually kind of surprised about lack of detail that they provided, and... Uh, that's that. But so if you go to page 295 of the Monster Manual, uh, there's a, they do talk about vampires and some of their powers and weaknesses. But they also had others that I was kind of surprised they didn't. They don't specify that vampires need to eat human blood. So they kind of leaves it open to interpretation. Does any blood do? Can they eat blood from a rat? Can they eat blood from any other living creature? So... I just took that as leeway for the dungeon master to do what they want, unless there's a specific rule in the module or world you're already playing. Mine is a homebrewed world, so and mine, vampires are going to be able to survive on any blood, though. And mine, I think probably some sort of disadvantage would be 
applied to the vampire if they're not eating human blood, which is their kind of highest form and power of blood. So that's that. Uh, also not described in there, do they eat regular food? Do they drink regular food or not? Is it only blood? Can they? Would they? Should they? I don't know. You know, so often in cinema and stories, vampires are per portrayed as kind of hypersexual, is how they are. But why not other appetites? Why not foods? Why not whatever? Why not as they age, they're always chasing better and better. And the more they've had, it's harder for them to find better food, better wine, and, you know, and even if not only just better sex, right? Woo-hoo-hoo. Anyway, but so that's the case in mind. So I also have reference to a character who we wind up finding out is a vampire referencing, sorry, referencing a desire to eat pie, a piece of pie. And in that, I just, I wanted to know, would they actually eat the pie, the, the vampire? I know this is random, <laughs> but that's the way my brain thinks. Anyway, there's a lot of leeway with vampires and what are they and what they can not do. Uh, the one kind of thing in the rules I wanted to talk briefly on here about is in the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, pages 81 and 82, there's a discussion of experience thresholds and challenge ratings. And it's kind of a mathematical system set up to deal with how is a if you run across X run across X across of monster X amount, sorry, X amount of monsters, how how is that going to work out for the party? Are they likely to win? Are they likely to be challenged? Or are they most likely just going to get destroyed outright? And that's dealt with on those two pages of the Dungeon Master's Guide, 81 and 82, uh, about experience thresholds and challenge ratings. And those are things that are, challenge ratings are applied to all the monsters in the monster manual. And then this experience threshold, there's calculations on those pages, kind of as a tool for DMs to figure out how is an encounter going to go? It can be kind of complicated and arcane, not arcane, but it, it's, it can be kind of complicated. And I think it requires a certain amount of experience to figure it out. Because as we saw all the way back in the first one, a single surprise round can in, change an entire combat. So it may be that the challenge rating and the experience thresholds all line up that you should have won, but in the opening round of a combat, you lose two of your characters. It, it it entirely changes the equation. And so it's not a perfect thing, but it is a tool to use. And I just kind of wanted to point it out. And in fact, I used it in the story to flush out about how many clerics and paladins and of what level were pursuing this vampire. As they leave, the, the party of clerics and paladins definitely thinks they have the advantage on not the advantage, they know he's dangerous, but they feel like they had a good plan and they feel like they're enough of him to deal with him. Uh, as the as the story progresses, though, what happens is the party gets picked apart by traps and ambushes that they weren't ready for. And, and, and a lot of people, you could listen to it and go, oh, it's all clerics, of course they would just re revive everyone and heal them all, but there's, there's a need as the vampire is escaping to continue to follow. There's also rules in the the player's handbook and with spells where there's a, there's quite a bit of resources needed for reviving reviving from death characters and so it in this story 
you have to believe that they weren't prepared to get as beaten as they were. And so it's not like they could walk along raising from the dead all of their characters as they went. And in fact, it winds up quite uh, bad for them. So even in the end of this story, we wind up with one last character kneeling before the bad vampire. And the bad vampire is going to turn turn the main character frame into a vampire as kind of this final just act of retribution on this group that that came against him and also out of a boredom he's a very old vampire so he's looking for something new uh and in that moment there is a a situation where if you look on the player's handbook there's a cleric's player's handbook and the cleric ability called divine intervention and it's on page 59 and the cleric a clerics i think all the clerics get that ability at level 10 and basically what it allows is for that character the cleric to make a plea to their god and the result is basically up to the dm though it gives some guidelines as a dm obviously you the dm dungeon master you have leeway to do what you want so this is a situation where I imagine divine intervention, this character wanting not to be turned to evil makes this last minute plea to his God as he is being turned into a vampire. And it has a very interesting result if you listen to this story, but this is where we kind of find out where the DM, I talked earlier about how the vampires are there's a lot left to up to your imagination of, of how vampires may work. But one thing it does specify in the monster's manual is that as you are turned into a vampire, you are made evil. Basically your body turns to evil and you forget what goodness you had inside of you. And that's very clear. So I wanted to come up with a way as part of the discussion with my wife to have a vampire not have that situation. And so This is where I use this tool, divine intervention, cleric ability to come up with an alternate solution. And we find out that frame then is partly still turned to, I mean, he completely is turned to vampire, but through the story, he's, he, he retains his will and goes on to be something else. So that's was just another thing and a way to change that story and allow a vampire to be something other than evil. So it's all in there. It's all in the rules. You can make whatever you want out of out of this game. So uh yeah, that's that on that story of anything. Uh the last two are real quick and actually are kind of flushing out side stuff. I'm gonna go over them pretty quick here though. So episode ten and eleven, fishy business. Uh, to me, it's kind of a story as a DM, how much do you actually know about what's going on in the background of your story? Are you a guy that has always just, or gal or anything, any person, are you a person that knows what's going on in the background of your campaign? Do, do you have all these forces, these cogs and wheels moving around and do you do, do you know what they all are or do you just see to the pants? It's very interactive and you improvise. I think they're both very different skills. And I think they both can be highly successful as the, and you need, you need them both to a degree, but you definitely can be more of one than the other. Do you have it very planned out or are you very improv, improvisional? I don't know how you even see that. Do you improv a lot? Are you able to just 
this is what's next. This is what's next. Uh, I myself find out that I am a very much planning guy. I want to have as much planned out as possible, uh, which, which shows I need to work more on my improvisational skills. But anyway, are you planning out or whatever? So fishy business is a story we wind up with an apparent NPC moving into a town, but quickly find out there's something wrong with this NPC. And, uh, he winds up doing many strange things and having many strange interactions and, uh, uh, connections with people in the town. And we find out he's actually looking for somebody and the somebody winds up being a person that we have already seen in episode one. It's Alarian the wizard. And also just kind of makes us go, wait, what's going on? There's the first episode seemed very random, but this begins to explain, wait, something weirder may be going on here in that first episode. And it's not just a random adventuring party. And that party wasn't just at that temple for just a random reason. So there's the beginnings of what's going on here. Uh, but as far as Dungeons and Dragons, again, this is just kind of a, a quick look at dungeon mastering. Do you know? Do you know what's going on? How do you deal with it? Also, for anyone that wants to, you can look up Doppelganger on the Monster Manual, page 82, Devious and Deceitful. Maybe that's what's going on here, huh? Doppelganger, Monster Manual, page 82, Devious and Deceitful. So, And the last story, Season 1, Episode 12 and 13, which was Best Laid Plans, is kind of more of the same, more what I just was talking about, forces in motion. Do you know what's going on? And it also ties back into that first story because you have an abandoned temple in the middle of the woods. Why are there hobgoblins there? But if you kind of think about it, there's things that do and don't make sense. But hobgoblins may or may not, they're not in much, sorry, in such small numbers, they wouldn't be found in the woods just hanging out. So why, why are there even hobgoblins in that temple? This, this story explains that, uh, you find out some very powerful characters. I think we already mentioned General Soldrig, who uh, winds up killing Ortoval in the first one. And we have Captain Morop, who is felled by the dagger of the gnome's snare. So I also just thought it was interesting to tell the story, a story from the monster's perspective and have them have them also have a voice or a view too, so that they're not just, you know, numbers that we're crossing off as we roll criticals and scream with our friends and high five them but maybe they have a purpose as well so that's that uh so if you look on monsters manual monsters manual page 185 through 187 uh, talks a lot hob talks a lot about hobgoblins and who they are and if you read about them they are very military and organization kind of ruthless but they are diligent and thoughtful and planning and conniving and their their whole existence is around military conquest so if you lead that story that's what's going on with general soldrig's about to be making a name for himself by making uh, a very large attack on a human city and as we end season one we find out that that city is probably still in trouble just not in the way that the general was trying to come up with a very different plan so uh, Hobgoblins Monster Manual, page 185 through 187. Uh, ton of fun if you... This is the other thing about the Monster Manual. With a vampire, like I said, it didn't... Maybe not as much detail, but I think part of that is it's, we already have so many ideas about vampires. 
Hobgoblins, it gives a ton of information about who they are, how they organize, which is a great tool for uh, dungeon masters to put monsters in and, and add the flavor and figure out why they or how they exist in the world. So, well, that's it. Uh, that was me talking about season one uh, and the rules from Dungeons and Dragons 5e and a little bit more, a little bit of insight. Uh, if you join me next week, we are actually going to be doing questions and answers from listeners directly about, hopefully, season one. And uh, after that, there'll be a one-week break, and season two will kick right up. So I really thank you again all for listening and for joining me uh, on this journey. I seriously appreciate it, and I'm just enjoying telling stories. So I am always interested in feedback. You can contact me on Twitter, uh, handles at Joel Rigetti. You can contact me at Facebook. That's at Speaking Stone Studio, and that's all one word put together under, uh, not none capitalized, Speaking Stone Studio. All one word, all lowercase on, on, uh, yeah, Facebook. And of course, the very last way, or right now, the only way to listen to these stories, and I appreciate every one of you that does, there's four or five that are free, and then the rest are just patrons right now, are available to patrons. But if you will join me on my Patreon site, which is at www.patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, backslash, Speaking Stone Studio. Again, all one word, all lowercase. So, patreon.com, backslash, Speaking Stone Studio. Uh, there's a, a way to go on and message me there. So I would love to answer any questions you have about season one. I would love to answer any questions you have about Dungeons and Dragons. Would love to answer any questions you have, uh, even about this episode. So, uh, can't thank you all enough and I will see you next week again for questions and answers. Hello listener, are you a fan of Tales from the Dungeon? Want early access to episode releases, character sheets, maps, and more? Please consider becoming a patron of the show. Join the other adventurers that help make Tales from the Dungeon a reality and become a patron today at www.patreon.com backslash speakingstonestudio All one word, all lowercase. That's www.patreon.com backslash speakingstonestudio. Join today and keep the adventure alive.